Hello, listeners, and welcome to the free library open source read-along of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte with Isabeau and Morgan from Womance. Your friendly friends from Womance. Yeah. So this week, Isabeau's going to be reading chapter four out loud for our enjoyment. Do you want to tell them what happened last time? Last time, so Jane, she got hit in the face by her cousin, and her mean aunt made her go and stay in a haunted bedroom. And then when she came out, she was really sick, and so she got a visit from an apothecary, and when he was checking up on her, she was like, I think I would like to go to school. He asked her if she wanted to go to school. She was like, sounds better than this bullshit place. And so she was like, yes, sir. And the decision has been made that she will be going to school. Chapter 4 From my discourse with Mr. Lloyd and from the above-reported conference between Bessie and Abbott, I gathered enough of hope to suffice as a motive for wishing to get well. A change seemed near. I desired and waited it in silence. It tarried, however. Days and weeks passed. I had regained my normal state of health, but no new allusion was made to the subject over which I brooded. Mrs. Reed surveyed me at times with a severe eye, but seldom addressed me. Since my illness, she had drawn a more marked line of separation than ever between me and her own children appointing me a small closet to sleep in by myself, condemning me to take my meals alone and pass all my time in the nursery while my cousins were constantly in the drawing room. Not a hint, however, did she drop about sending me to school. Still, I felt an instinctive certainty that she would not long endure me under the same roof with her, for her glance now more than ever, when turned on me, expressed an insuperable and rooted aversion. My editrix, Susan Ostrov Weiser, wants to make the point that at this point in history, closet meant any small room (laughs) and I feel like it's important to point out as well just so we're (laughs) it's not a closet under the stairs y'all this is not a Harry Potter it's just any small room any small room you could call a closet fine Eliza and Georgiana, evidently acting according to orders, spoke to me as little as possible. John thrust his tongue in his cheek whenever he saw me. Gross. I know, right? He's disgusting. I mean, I don't think that gesture meant the same thing to John Reed as it does to us now. What an interesting project that would be. Like, when do gestures become rude and how and how long? And like, My brother did an essay on that and tried to get it published for his senior project called The Shortest Story on the Longest Finger, about how the middle finger became a rude gesture. Isn't that a great title? That is a fabulous title. I would definitely read that in the Atlantic. My brother is a much greater wit than me, and we are both very lucky he doesn't have a podcast about romance novels. I mean, he's invited on any time. He didn't read his book last time he was invited on, so I don't know (laughs) if he is invited any (laughs) time. Adam, if you're listening, you can have a second chance, but you do have to do the reading. (laughs) John thrust his tongue in his cheek whenever he saw me, and once attempted chastisement, but as I instantly turned against him, roused by the same sentiment of deep ire and desperate revolt which had stirred my corruption before, he thought it better to desist and ran from me uttering execrations and vowing I had burst his nose. I had indeed leveled at that prominent feature as hard a blow as my knuckles could inflict. Way to bury the lead. (laughs) I know, right? And when I saw that either that or my look daunted 
haunted him. I had the greatest inclination to follow up my advantaged purpose, but he was already with his mama. I heard him in a blubbering tone commence the tale of how the nasty Jane Eyre had flown at him like a mad cat. He was stopped rather harshly. Don't talk to me about her, John. I told you not to go near her. She's not worthy of notice. I do not choose that either you or your sister should associate with her. Here, leaning over the banister, I cried out suddenly and without at all deliberating on my words, they are not fit to associate with me. Mrs. Reed was a rather stout woman, but on hearing this strange and audacious declaration, she ran nimbly up the stairs, swept me like a whirlwind into the nursery and crushing me down on the edge of my crib, dared me in an emphatic voice to rise from that place or utter one syllable during the remainder of the day. A crib back then meant any child's bed. What would Uncle Reed say to you if he were alive was my scarcely voluntary demand. I say scarcely (laughs) voluntary, for it seemed as if my tongue pronounced words without my will consenting to their utterance. Something spoke out of me over which I had no control. What? said Mrs. Reed under her breath. Her usually cold, composed gray eye became troubled with a look like fear. She took her hand from my arm and gazed at me as if she really did not know whether I were child or fiend. I was now in for it. This is so delightful and so much fun to read in 2020. I can't imagine how satisfying it would be to be a woman reading this in 1840. No kidding. Like, how validating would it be to find Jane Eyre as a book and be like, this, this, this is the feeling. (sighs) My Uncle Reed is in heaven and can see all you do and think. And so can Papa and Mama. They know how you shut me up all day long and how you wish me dead. Mrs. Reed soon rallied her spirits. She shook me most soundly. She boxed both my ears and then left without a word. Bessie supplied the hiatus by a homily of an hour's length in which she proved beyond a doubt that I was the most wicked and abandoned child ever reared under a roof. I half believed her, for I felt indeed only bad feeling surging in my breast. November, December, and half of January passed away. I'm not gonna lie, I love it when books do that. The second book in Twilight just had like November, December, January, and they were just pages that you had to turn. I was like, ugh, poetry. I like that too. That is good. Welcome to our podcast within a podcast, Talking Taika. It's like Taika Waititi says, if you get bored writing something, it's likely that people are going to be bored reading it or watching it. Yeah. So just go somewhere else. Go somewhere else in time. Go to a different room. Go to another place on the earth or in the universe. Just go somewhere else. Yeah. And it's so succinct and lovely. Why bother? Exactly. You don't care. Neither do I. Moving on. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing interesting happened until Christmas. Christmas and the New Year had been celebrated at Gateshead with the usual festive cheer. Presents had been interchanged, dinners and evening parties given. From every enjoyment I was, of course, excluded. My share of the gaiety consisted in witnessing the daily appareling of Eliza and Georgina and seeing them descend to the drawing room dressed out in thin muslin frocks and scarlet sashes with hair elaborately ringleted and afterwards in listening to the sound of the piano or the harp played below to the passing to and fro of the butler and the footman to the jingling of glass and china as refreshments were handed to the broken hum of conversation as the drawing room doors opened and closed. When tired of this occupation, I would retire from the stairhead to the solitary and silent nursery. There, though somewhat sad, I was not miserable. To speak truth, I had not the least wish to go into company, for in company I was very rarely noticed, and if Bessie had but been kind and companionable, I should have deemed it a treat to spend the evenings quietly with her, instead of passing them under the formidable eye of Mrs. Reed in a room full of ladies and gentlemen. But Bessie, as soon 
soon as she had dressed her young ladies, used to take herself off to the lively regions of the kitchen and housekeeper's room, generally bearing the candle along with her. I then sat with my doll on my knee till the fire got low, glancing round occasionally to make sure that nothing worse than myself haunted the shadowy room. Nothing worse than myself. And when the embers sank to a dull red, I undressed hastily, tugging at knots and strings as I best might, and sought shelter from cold and darkness in my crib. To this crib, I always took my doll. Human beings must love something. And... (laughs) Oh my god, the sentence just gets worse. Get through it, Isabel. I know. Human beings must love something, and in the dearth of worthier objects of affection, I contrived to find a pleasure in loving and cherishing a faded graven image, shabby as a miniature scarecrow. Oh, God. <laughs> sorry. It's fine. It's so sad. Faded graven image. Poor Jane. Poor Jane. It puzzles me now to remember with what absurd sincerity I doted on this little toy, half fancying it alive and capable of sensation. I could not sleep unless it was folded in my nightgown, and when it lay there safe and warm, I was comparatively happy, believing it to be likewise. Long did the hour seem while I waited the departure of company and listened for the sound of Bessie's step on the stairs. Sometimes she would come up and in the interval to seek her thimble or her scissors, or perhaps to bring me something by way of supper. A bun or a cheesecake. Then she would sit on the bed while I ate it, and when I had finished, she would tuck the clothes round me, and twice she kissed me and said, Good night, Miss Jane. When thus gentle Bessie seemed to me the best, prettiest, kindest being in the world, and I wished most intensely that she would always be so pleasant and amiable, and never push me about, or scold, or task me unreasonably, as she was too often wont to do. Bessie Lee must, I think, have been a girl of good natural capacity, for she was smart in all she did, and had a remarkable knack of narrative. So at least, I judge from the impression made on me by her nursery tales. She was pretty too, if my recollections of her face and person are correct. I remember her as a slim young woman with black hair, dark eyes, very nice features, and good, clear complexion. But she had a capricious and hasty temper, and indifferent ideas of principle or justice. Still, such as she was, (laughs) I preferred her to anyone else at Gateshead Hall. You know, this whole passage is stirring a few things, and I think I'll save one for final thoughts. Mm-hmm. But I was listening to this podcast called You're Wrong About, and they were talking about Courtney Love and oh. what her life was like in the final days of Kurt Cobain's life. And they're like, you have to remember, like, she had a two-year-old daughter, and then she had a violently suicidal, super depressed husband. And people always point out that, like, oh, Courtney Love had nannies. And they're like, but have you ever been around a child with a mother? They're obsessed with them. And I was like, it's so true. Like, children are so well and truly obsessed with their mothers. Yes. And this fixation of like the most beautiful, the most smart, the most kind. I remember sitting in church and they said that I had to love Jesus above all others. And I remember in my head during prayers apologizing to Jesus that I loved my mom more. (laughs) And that that was just how it was going to be because I had spent the whole like 15 minutes trying to reconcile how there could be any greater capacity for love than what I felt for my mother. And, you know, and like just wanting to be in the bathroom with them all the time when they're big and like, oh my God, and touch them just like holding on to your mom like as a young child. Just being in the same room, knowing what she was doing, knowing what she was thinking. Like, it's incredible. And it's also like a kind of love that we don't ever re 
recreate later in life, except for perhaps when we have children of our own. But I think even when that happens, you're like, please leave me alone while I pee. Totally. You get touched out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just like absolutely not. And a child just has like bottomless energy for expressing affection and bottomless capacity to give it. And I just think about poor young Jane and her faded graven image and the nurse who's nice to her sometimes and you can tell in her adult life Jane is reflecting on these kind of shortcomings but you can also see in the text like this love for mother Mm -hmm. in whatever capacity you can find it and of course Jane is you know spoiler alert we're gonna get a martyred mother figure but also just like the parallels like this is a perfect parallel to where Jane is gonna end up Mm mm-hmm It was the 15th of January, about 9 o'clock in the morning. Bessie was gone down to breakfast. My cousins had not yet been summoned to their mama. Eliza was putting on her bonnet and warm garden coat to go and feed her poultry, an occupation of which she was fond. And... There are a lot of colons, and not less so of selling the eggs to the housekeeper and hoarding up the money she thus obtained. She had a turn for traffic and a marked propensity. Trade commerce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a marked propensity for saving, shown not only in the vending of eggs and chickens, but also in driving hard bargains with the gardener about flower roots, seeds, and slips of plants. That functionary, having orders from Mrs. Reed to buy his young lady all the products of her parterre she wished to sell, and Eliza would have sold the hair off her head if she could have made a handsome profit thereby. As to her money, she first secreted it in odd corners, wrapped in a rag or an old curl paper. But some of these hoards having been discovered by the housemaid, Eliza, fearful of one day losing her valued treasure, consented to entrust it to her mother at a usurious rate of interest, 50 or 60%, which interest she exacted every quarter, keeping her accounts in a little book with anxious accuracy. I am immediately terrified of Eliza. Because any woman with this kind of sharpness of mind in this time period is going to be violent and dangerous. Any woman with this sharpness of mind and no job outlet in today's age is going to be the bane of bake sales across private schooldom in the 21st century. Seriously. For Eliza to be and to feel like this need to secure money when she herself is a well-endowed child of an expensive house, this is actually bespeaking a very strange insecurity in Eliza. And the fact that she's like hiding her money in various places, like a squirrel hides things for winter. Eliza is a dangerous weapon. Indeed, and already feels an insecurity not unlike Jane's. And it's strange. That's like a strange detail that I don't think I ever picked up on before. Also that she would sell one of her most treasured and beautiful pieces of her outward self if she could gain coin from it. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm not that attached to my hair. And I have to believe that there were certain women in this time period who felt like I did. I totally agree. Even as all of society was like, you're crowning glory. (laughs) Yeah. It's remarkable that, you know, I like my hair. I have fun with it. Then I get bored and I can cut it all off. Oh, me too. There's nothing I love more than growing my hair out, getting sick of it, and then getting a pixie cut. I guess what I value more than my hair is the attention of other people going, oh, did you cut your hair? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) That's funny. Okay. 
Georgiana sat high on a stool, dressing her hair in the glass and interweaving her curls with artificial flowers and faded feathers, of which she had found a store in a drawer in the attic. I was making my bed, having received strict orders from Bessie to get it arranged before she returned, for Bessie now frequently employed me as a sort of under-nursery maid to tidy the room, <laughs> dust the chairs, etc. Having spread the quilt and folded my nightdress, I went to the window seat to put in order some picture books and doll's house furniture scattered there, an abrupt command from Georgiana to let her playthings alone for the tiny chairs and mirrors, the fairy plates and cups were her property, stopped my proceedings, and then, for lack of other occupation, I fell to breathing on the frost flowers with which the window was fretted, and thus clearing a space in the glass through which I might look out to the grounds, where all was still and petrified under the influence of a hard frost. From this window were visible the porter's lodge and the carriage road, and just as I had dissolved so much of the silver-white foliage, veiling the panes as left room to look out, I saw the gates thrown open and a carriage roll through. I watched it ascending the drive with indifference. Carriages often came to Gateshead, but none ever brought visitors in whom I was interested. It stopped in front of the house. The doorbell rang loudly. The newcomer was admitted. All this being nothing to me, my vacant attention soon found livelier attraction in the spectacle of a little hungry robin, which came and chirped on the twigs of a leafless cherry tree nailed against the wall near the casement. The remains of my breakfast of bread and milk stood on the table, and having crumbled a morsel of roll, I was tugging at the sash to put out crumbs on the windowsill, when Bessie came running up the stairs into the nursery. Miss Jane, take off your pinafore. What are you doing there? Have you washed your hands and face this morning? I gave another tug before I answered, for I wanted the bird to be secure in its bread. The sash yielded. I scattered the crumbs, some on the stone sill, some on the cherry tree bough, and then closing the window, I replied, no, Bessie, I've only just finished dusting. Troublesome, careless child. What are you doing now? You look quite red as if you'd been about some mischief. What were you opening the window for? I was spared the trouble of answering, for Bessie seemed in too great a hurry to listen to explanations. She hauled me to the washstand, inflicted a merciless but happily brief scrub on my face and hands with soap, water, and a coarse towel, disciplined my head with a bristly brush, denuded me of my pinafore, and then hurrying me to the top of the stairs bid me go down directly as I was wanted in the breakfast room. I saw a street fight between two robins and a cardinal this morning. Oh, wow. I just stood there and watched it for a while because I don't have a lot going on in my life right now. I mean, that's what I would have done. Uh, it was so beautiful. And the <laughs> robins weren't fat, you know? They were yeah. just like skinny. So I was rooting for the cardinal. He was also the underdog. I get it. I mean, he was being ganged up on. Yeah. I would have asked who wanted me. I would have demanded if Mrs. Reed was there, but Bessie was already gone and had closed the nursery door upon me. I slowly descended. For nearly three months, I had never been called to Mrs. Reed's presence, restricted so long to the nursery. The breakfast, the dining and drawing rooms were become for me awful regions on which it dismayed me to intrude. I now stood in the empty hall. Before me was the breakfast room door, and I stopped, intimidated and trembling. What a miserable little poltroon had fear engendered of unjust punishment made of me in those days. I feared to return to the nursery. I feared to go forward to the parlor. Ten minutes I stood in agitated hesitation. The vehement ringing of the breakfast room bell decided me. I must enter. Poltroon means coward. Mm. Who could want me, I asked inwardly. As with both hands, I turned the stiff door handle, which for a second or two resisted my efforts. What should I see besides Aunt Reed in the apartment? A man or a woman? The handle turned, the door unclosed, and passing through and curtsying low, I looked up 
at a black pillar. Such at least appeared to me at first sight, the straight, narrow, sable-clad shape standing erect on the rug. The grim face at the top was like a carved mask placed above the shaft by way of capital. Mrs. Reed occupied her usual seat by the fireside. She made a signal for me to approach. I did so, and she introduced me to the stony stranger with the words, this is the little girl respecting whom I applied to you. He, for it was a man, <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Uh, turned his head slowly towards where I stood, and having examined me with two inquisitive-looking gray eyes, which twinkled under a pair of bushy brows, said solemnly and in a bass voice, her size is small. What is her age? Ten years? So much, was the doubtful answer, and he prolonged his scrutiny for some minutes. Presently, he addressed me. Your name, little girl? Jane Eyre, sir. In uttering these words, I looked up. He seemed to me a tall gentleman, but then I was very little. His features were large, and all the lines of his frame were equally hard and prim. Well, Jane Eyre, and are you a good child? Impossible to reply to this in the affirmative. <laughs> My little world held a contrary opinion. I was silent. Mrs. Reed answered for me by an expressive shake of her head, adding, soon, perhaps the less said on the subject, the better, Mr. Brocklehurst. Sorry indeed to hear it. She and I must have some talk. And bending from the perpendicular, he installed his person in the armchair opposite Mrs. Reed's. Come here, he said. I stepped across the rug. He placed me square and straight before him. What a face he had now that it was almost on level with mine. What a great nose, and what a mouth, and what a large, prominent teeth. This is the second time Jane has been called to stand before a man in a chair. Also this, like, what great eyes you have, Grandma. Like, what great mouth, you know? Yeah. No sight so sad as that of a naughty child, he began. (laughs) Yeah, it's about to get worse. No sight so sad as that of a naughty child, he began, especially a naughty little girl. Do you know where the wicked go after death? They go to hell, was my ready and orthodox answer. And what is hell? Can you tell me that? A pit full of fire. And should you like to fall into that pit and to be burning there forever? No, sir. What must you do to avoid it? I deliberated a moment. My answer, when it did come, was objectionable. I must keep in good health and not die. (laughs) How (laughs) Get it, sis! Fuck it up! Fuck it up! How can you keep in good health? Children younger than you die daily. I buried a little child of five years old only a day or two since. A good little child whose soul is now in heaven. It is to be feared. The same could not be said of you, were you to be called hence. Not being in a condition to remove his doubt, I only cast my eyes down on the two large feet planted on the rug and sighed, wishing myself far enough away. I hope that sigh is from the heart and that you repent for ever having been the occasion of discomfort to your excellent benefactress. Benefactress? Benefactress? I said inwardly. They all call Mrs. Reed my benefactress? If so, a benefactress is a disagreeable thing. Do you say your prayers night and morning, continued my interrogator? Yes, sir. Do you read your Bible? Sometimes. With pleasure? Are you fond of it? Tell me how much you like the Bible. (laughs) I like Revelations, and the book of Daniel, and Genesis, and Samuel, and a little bit of Exodus, and some parts of Kings, and Chronicles, and Job and Jonah. And the Psalms? I hope you like them. No, sir. No? Oh, shocking. I have a little boy younger than you who knows six Psalms by heart. When you ask him which he would rather have, a gingerbread nut to eat or a verse of a Psalm to learn, he says, oh, the verse of a Psalm. Angels sing Psalms, says he. I wish to be a little angel here below. He then gets two nuts in recompense for his infant piety. Do you know what? This is like proto soft boy right here. This (laughs) this four-year-old boy. I love psalms. I want to memorize psalms. Psalms! Psalms! Psalms is the Bible book of soft boys. 
<laughs> so true. Revelations is the Bible book of cool kids. <laughs> right? Goth kids. <laughs> Psalms are not interesting, I remarked. That proves you have a wicked heart and you must pray to God to change it, to give you a new and clean one, to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So this is where my little footnote is. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? I'm ready. Child's Guide. The Reverend William Karras Wilson, the original basis for the character of Brocklehurst, was a wealthy evangelical clergyman who founded and ran the Clergy Daughters School at Cowan Bridge, attended by all the Bronte sisters. He published a monthly tract, The Children's Friend, that warned of damnation for sinful children. Nice. Seems like a safe place to be. (laughs) I know. So Charlotte's working through some (laughs) stuff with this past. Write what you know. I do think that this This might be a revenge fantasy on her part. Uh, It definitely is. Jane saying all of these things to Brocklehurst. Totally. I was about to propound a question touching the manner in which that operation of changing my heart was to be performed when Mrs. Reed interposed, telling me to sit down. She then proceeded to carry on the conversation herself. Mr. Brocklehurst, I believe I intimated in the letter which I wrote to you three weeks ago that this little girl has not quite the character and disposition I could wish. Should you admit her into Lowood School, I should be glad if the superintendent and teachers were requested to keep a strict eye on her and above all to guard against her worst fault, a tendency to deceit. I mentioned this in your hearing, Jane, that you may not attempt to impose on Mr. Brocklehurst. Well might I dread, well might I dislike Mrs. Reed, for it was her nature to wound me cruelly. Never was I happy in her presence, however carefully I obeyed, however strenuously I strove to please her. My efforts were still repulsed and repaid by such sentences as the above. Now uttered before a stranger, the accusation cut me to the heart. I dimly perceived that she was already obliterating hope from the new phase of existence which she destined me to enter. I felt, though, I could could not have expressed the feeling that she was sowing aversion and unkindness along my future path. I saw myself transformed under Mr. Brocklehurst's eye into an artful, noxious child. And what could I do to remedy the injury? Nothing indeed, thought I, as I struggled to repress a sob and hastily wiped away some tears. The impotent evidences of my anguish. Deceit is indeed a sad fault in a child, said Mr. Brocklehurst. It is akin to falsehood and all liars will have their portion in the lake of burning with fire and brimstone. She shall, however, be watched, Mrs. Reed. I will speak to Miss Temple and the teachers. I should wish her to be brought up in a manner suiting her prospects, continued my benefactress, to be made useful, to be kept humble, as for the vacations she will, with your permission, spend them always at Lowood. Oh. Little Ebenezer Scrooge here mixed in. Yeah, goodness. Goodness gracious. Your decisions are perfectly judicious, madam, returned Mr. Brocklehurst. Humility is a Christian grace, and one peculiarly, and one appropriate to the pupils of Lowood. I therefore direct that a special care shall be bestowed on its cultivation amongst them. I have studied how best to mortify them in the worldly sentiment of pride, and only the other day I had a pleasing proof of my success. My second daughter, Augusta, went with her mamma to visit the school, and on her return she exclaimed, Oh dear papa, how quiet and plain all the girls at Lowood look, with their hair combed behind their ears and their long pinafores, those little holland pockets outside their frocks. They're almost like poor people's children. And, said she, they looked at my dress and mamas as if they had never seen a silk gown before. This is the state of things I quite approve, returned Mrs. Reed. Had I sought all England over, I could scarcely have found a system more exactly fitting a child like Jane Eyre. Consistency, my dear Mr. Brocklehurst. I advocate consistency in all things. Consistency, madam, is the 
first of Christian duties, and it has been observed in every arrangement connected with the establishment of Lowood. Plain fare, simple attire, unsophisticated accommodations, hearty and active habits, such is the order of the day in the house and its inhabitants. Quite right, sir. I may then depend upon the child being received as a pupil of Lowood, and there being trained in conformity to her position and prospects. Madam, you may. She shall be placed in that nursery of chosen plants, and I trust she will show herself grateful for the inestimable privilege of her election. I will send her then as soon as possible, Mr. Brocklehurst, for I assure you I feel anxious to be relieved of a responsibility that was becoming too irksome. No doubt, no doubt, madam. And now I wish you good morning. I shall return to Brocklehurst Hall in the course of a week or two. My good friend, the Archdeacon, will not permit me to leave him sooner. I shall send Miss Temple notice that she is to expect a new girl, so that there will be no difficulty about receiving her. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mr. Brocklehurst. Remember me to Mrs. and Miss Brocklehurst, and to Augusta and Theodore, and Master Broughton Brocklehurst. I will, madam. Little girl, here is a book entitled The Child's Guide. Read it with prayer, especially that part containing an account of the awfully sudden death of Martha G., a naughty child addicted to falsehood and deceit. With these words, Mr. Brocklehurst put into my hand a thin pamphlet sewn in a cover, and having rung for his carriage, he departed. Mrs. Reed and I were left alone. Some minutes passed in silence. She was sewing. I was watching her. Mrs. Reed might be, at that time, some six or seven and thirty. She was a woman of robust frame, square-shouldered, strong-limbed, not tall, and though stout, not obese. She had a somewhat large face, an underjaw being much developed and very solid. Her brow was low, her chin large and prominent, mouth and nose sufficiently regular. Under her light eyebrows glimmered an eye devoid of ruth. Her skin was dark and opaque and her hair nearly flaxen. Her constitution was sound as a bell. Illness never came near her. She was an exact, clever manager. Her household and tenantry were thoroughly under her control. Her children only at times defied her authority and laughed it to scorn. She dressed well. She had a presence in port calculated to set off handsome attire. Sitting on a low stool a few yards from her armchair, I examined her figure. I perused her features. In my hand I held the tract containing the sudden death of the liar, to which narrative my attention had been pointed as to the appropriate warning. What had just passed, what Mrs. Reed had said concerning me to Mr. Brocklehurst, the whole tenor of their conversation was recent, raw, and stinging in my mind. I had felt every word as acutely as I had heard it plainly, and a passion of resentment fermented now within me. Mrs. Reed looked up from her work, her eyes settled on mine, her fingers at the same time suspended their nimble movement. Go out of the room, return to the nursery, was her mandate. My look or something else must have struck her as offensive, for she spoke with extreme, though suppressed, irritation. I got up, I went to the door, I came back again. I walked to the window, across the room, then close up to her. Speak, I must. I'd been trodden on severely and must turn, but how? What strength had I to dart retaliation at my antagonist? I gathered my energies and launched them in this blunt sentence. I am not deceitful. If I were, I should say I loved you, but I declare I do not love you. I dislike you the worst of anybody in the world except John Reed, and this book about the liar you may give to your girl Georgiana, for it is she who tells lies and not I. Mrs. Reed's hands still lay on her work inactive. Her eye of ice continued to dwell freezing 
accusingly on mine. What more have you to say, she asked, rather in the tone in which a person might address an opponent of adult age than such as is ordinarily used to a child. That eye of hers, that voice, stirred every antipathy I had. Shaking from head to foot, thrilled with ungovernable excitement, I continued, I am glad you are no relation of mine. I will never call you aunt again as long as I live. I will never come to see you when I am grown up. And if anyone asks me how I liked you and how you treated me, I will say the very thought of you makes me sick and that you treated me with miserable cruelty. How dare you affirm that, Jane Eyre? How dare I, Mrs. Reed? How dare I? Because it is the truth. You think I have no feelings and that I can do without one bit of love or kindness, but I cannot live so, and you have no pity. I shall remember how you thrust me back roughly and violently thrust me back into the red room and locked me up there to my dying day, though I was in agony, though I cried out while suffocating with distress, have mercy, have mercy, Aunt Reed, and that punishment you made me suffer because your wicked boy struck me, knocked me down for nothing. I will tell anybody who asks me questions this exact tale. People think you a good woman, but you are bad, hard-hearted. You are deceitful. Ere I had finished this reply, my soul began to expand, to exult, with the strangest sense of freedom, of triumph I ever felt. It seemed as if an invisible bond had burst, and that I had struggled out into unhoped-for liberty. Not without cause was the sentiment. Mrs. Reed looked frightened. Her work had slipped from her knee. She was lifting up her hands, rocking herself to and fro, and even twisting her face as if she would cry. Jane, you are under a mistake. What is the matter with you? Why do you tremble so violently? Would you like to drink some water? No, Mrs. Reed. Is there anything else you wish for, Jane? I assure you, I desire to be your friend, not you. You told Mr. Brocklehurst I had a bad character, a deceitful disposition, and I'll let everybody at Lowood know what you are and what you have done. Jane, you don't understand these things. Children must be corrected for their faults. Deceit is not my fault, I cried out in a savage high voice. But you are passionate, Jane, that you must allow. And now return to the nursery. There's a dear, and lie down a little. I am not your dear. I cannot lie down. Send me to school soon, Mrs. Reed, for I hate to live here. I will indeed send her to school soon, murmured Mrs. Reed, pseudo vache. Gathering up her work, she abruptly quitted the apartment. I want a shirt that says, I am not your dear. I cannot lie down. Ugh, goddamn. I don't necessarily know if the book is sympathetic because this feels, you know, the next line... I was left there alone, winner mm -hmm. of the field. I don't think that the book is in any way sympathetic to Mrs. Reed. No, not at all. And it really reads as like a revenge fantasy. Yes. I think there's something that I feel and that can be felt of the oppression of women by other women. Yes. And, you know, it's gentler this way. It hurts less this way. Like, there's something of a protectionist tone that could be interpreted from Mrs. Reed's actions here, where she's apologizing and saying, you know, I would be your friend. You are passionate, and I have to say you're deceitful because you must be humbled. Right. You know, it's the way that Mrs. Reed has successfully managed a tendency in her husband's death and has to manage her children and the way she constantly indulges her son speaks to something of a survival instinct, I think. I think so too. And, you know, in some ways, like both Mrs. Reed and Bessie represent that of a piece. Like Bessie's is like, if you would just be nice, if you would just smile, if you would just be calm yourself. And like, that's essentially what Mrs. Reed is saying here. Like, you need to be mm -hmm. curbed for your own fucking good. And Jane is eventually going to meet someone who doesn't feel she needs to be curbed. But then again, I guess he has a type. <laughs> I was left there alone, winner of the field. 
It was the hardest battle I had fought, and the first victory I had gained. I stood a while on the rug where Mr. Brocklehurst had stood, and I enjoyed my conqueror's solitude. First, I smiled to myself and felt elate, but this fierce pleasure subsided in me as fast as did the accelerated throb of my pulses. A child cannot quarrel with its elders as I had done, cannot give its furious feelings uncontrolled play as I had given mine without experiencing afterwards the pang of remorse and the chill of reaction. A ridge of lighted heath alive, glancing, devouring would have been a meat emblem of my mind when I accused and menaced Mrs. Reed. The same ridge, black and blasted, after the flames are dead, could have represented as meatly my subsequent condition, when half an hour silence and reflection had shown me the madness of my conduct and the dreariness of my hated and hating position. Ugh. Right? God, I feel that deeply. Fucking yes. Something of vengeance I had tasted for the first time. As aromatic wine, it seemed on swallowing warm and racy, its afterflavor metallic and corroding. Gave me a sensation as if I had been poisoned. Willingly would I now have gone and asked Mrs. Reed's pardon, but I knew partly from experience and partly from instinct that was the way to make her repulse me with double scorn, thereby re-exciting every turbulent impulse of my nature. I have a little note here that racy in its historical context means of excellent flavor. Mm. But I think this is one of those times when I like it better of like racy as we understand it now as something kind of mm-hmm. edgy and, yeah. and sexy and dangerous and but overall positive. Totally. And like how it evolves over time and like why those evolutions happen. I think like that's really interesting that racy in your notes is full flavored. Of excellent flavor. But like full flavored feels like almost right for our current interpretation of racy, doesn't it? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, where I'm like, that doesn't feel too off the mark for me. Yeah, and it it never really goes that far off the mark. Like, a closet is really similar to a a small room. Mm -hmm. Like a walk-in closet, for sure. Like, a crib is very similar to any child's bed. But, yeah, it's just, I really like how our current interpretation of racy works there, and I think it almost speaks more to what Jane is describing. Indeed, I agree. I would fain exercise some better faculty than that of fierce speaking, fain find nourishment for some less fiendish feeling than that of somber indignation. I took a book, some Arabian tales, I sat down and endeavored to read. I could make no sense of the subject, my own thoughts swam always between me and the page. I had usually found fascinating. I opened the glass door in the breakfast room, the shrubbery was quite still, the black frost rained, unbroken by sun or breeze, through the grounds. I covered my head and arms the skirt of my frock, and went out to walk in a part of the plantation which was quite sequestered, but I found no pleasure in the silent trees, the fallen fir cones, the congealed relics of autumn, russet leaves swept by past winds in heaps and now stiffened together. I leaned against a gate and looked into an empty field where no sheep were feeding, where the short grass was nipped and blanched. It was a very gray day, a most opaque sky, unding on snaw, canopied all fence flakes fell at intervals which settled on the hard path and on the hoary lee without melting i stood a wretched child enough whispering to myself over and over again what shall i do what shall i do all at once i heard a clear voice call miss jane where are you come to lunch it was bessie i knew well enough but i did not stir 
Her light step came tripping down the path. You naughty little thing, she said. Why don't you come when you are called? Bessie's presence, compared with the thoughts over which I had been brooding, seemed cheerful, even though, as usual, she was somewhat cross. The fact is, after my conflict and victory over Mrs. Reed, I was not disposed to care much for the nursemaid's transitory anger, and I was disposed to bask in her youthful lightness of heart. I just put my two arms round her and said, Come, Bessie, don't scold. The action was more frank and fearless than any I was habituated to indulge in. Somehow it pleased her. You are a strange child, Miss Jane, she said. She looked down at me, a little roving, solitary thing. And you are going to school, I suppose. I nodded. And won't you be sorry to leave poor Bessie? What does Bessie care for me? She's always scolding me. Because you're such a queer, frightened, shy little thing. You should be bolder. What? To get more knocks? nonsense. But you're rather put upon, that's certain. My mother said when she came to see me last week that she would not like a little one of her own to be in your place. Now come in. I have some good news for you. That's so true. Like the unappealing part of Jane is that put uponness, that like victimness. Mm-hmm. I don't think you have, Bessie. Child, what do you mean? What sorrowful eyes you fix on me? Well, but Mrs. and the young ladies and Master John are going out to tea this afternoon, and you shall have tea with me. I'll ask Cook to bake you a little cake, and then you shall help me to look over your drawers, for I am soon to pack your trunk. Mrs. intends you to leave Gateshead in a day or two, and you shall choose what toys you like to take with you. Bessie, you must promise not to scold me any more till I go. Well, I will. But mind, you're a very good girl, and don't be afraid of me. Don't start when I chance to speak rather sharply. It's so provoking. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, someone's just telling Jane, like, what the fuck is up? Right. Like, here's what sucks about you. <laughs> Fix it. I think we could all use a little bit of that Bessie tough love. Yeah. I don't think I shall ever be afraid of you again, Bessie, because I have got used to you and I shall soon have another set of people to dread. If you dread them, they'll dislike you. As you do, Bessie? I don't dislike you, miss. I believe I am fonder of you than of all the others. You don't show it. You little sharp thing. You've got quite a new way of talking. What makes you so venturesome and hearty? Why, I shall soon be away from you. And besides, I was going to say something about what had passed between me and Mrs. Reed, but on second thoughts, I considered it better to remain silent on that head. And so you're glad to leave me? Not at all, Bessie. Indeed, just now I'm rather sorry. Just now, and rather. How coolly my little lady says it. I dare say now if I were to ask you for a kiss, you wouldn't give it me. You'd say you'd rather not. I'll kiss you in welcome. Bend your head down. Bessie stooped. We mutually embraced, and I followed her into the house, quite comforted. That afternoon lapsed in peace and harmony, and in the evening Bessie told me some of her most enchanting stories, and sung me some of her sweetest songs. Even for me, life had its gleams of sunshine. (laughs) Even for me. I always uh, reflect on this Kurt Vonnegut quote where he says, like, some days you just have to look around and say, if this isn't living, I don't know what is. And you have to acknowledge it, you know, yeah. like you're having a good time. Yeah. But also it kind of is virtue signaling, right? Jane is finally being honest and clear. And so is Bessie. And they're able to have this intimate relationship because of honesty. For the first time, it's not unlike, you know, those senior goggles that you get, you know, as you're about to leave a place and transition into something new. And you're like, here's all the things that I definitely did want to say. And like, I do love you, but you did all this stuff stuff to me that hurt me and like blah 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 and Isabeau I am going to take this opportunity to tell you to don't start when I chance to speak to you rather sharply (laughs) it is so provoking it does just make me want to go harder on when you give your little your little jump of fright that our podcast listeners never see it's true I can see why that would be provoking you know it signals like blood in the water (laughs) exactly (laughs) quit putting blood in the water for me Isabeau (laughs) 
I'm sorry, just sometimes I feel like a chum bucket. <laughs> sometimes you are a chum bucket. <laughs> just like Jane, man. Just like Jane. Like Jane. Yeah, that's true. She's a chum bucket. I hope I hope she works it out. I hope so too. I mean, where where is it gonna go? She's finally not afraid of Bessie, the nicest person to her at Gateshead. What's gonna happen? Who knows? Who knows? Do you have any final thoughts on chapter four of Jane Eyre? I think the fact that Jane is able to, from the remove of the future that she's telling the story in, is able to talk about Mrs. Reed as like a successful homeowner and a successful landlord and Mm. a woman without a man in a world that really assumes that women require one and that there's a version of their terrible interactions that is really sort of about like if you struggle this will go harder for you yeah about the ways in which women keep women down and I think to put her in contrast and comparison with Bessie is really smart like obviously Bessie is saying some of the same things and there's like certainly a difference of class and obviously Bessie's tone is different but essentially the thing that they both say to Jane is the same and I think it's really right to point that out that even cloaked in like softness of Bessie that like that message is really coercive and bad and enraging and I think it's also worth noting just from like a we're very political people but you know it, it is painful to be oppressed and it's also just as painful to resist yeah and so there's nothing gained in allowing yourself to silently get through it yeah or at least much less to be gained but I think also one of the things that struck me in this reading is the description of Gateshead home during the holidays and, and Jane's experience of it and how she's going to have like a parallel experience once she gets to Thornfield Hall. Pretty much parallel experiences. There's even going to be another Bessie. Yeah. There's going to be another Georgiana. But there's going to be this unknown entity in Mr. Rochester. Like he's really filling a void rather than a role. Mm-hmm. I think is what this demonstrated for me. The other thing that I was struck by, Kara Jo Fukunawa did a adaptation, a filmic adaptation of Jane Eyre starring Michael Fassbender. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mia Vashikoska. He had like a couple of things... I think it was maybe his first movie. And he had a couple rules on it, like all directors who are very ambitious. He was like, I'm only going to use natural light. So he used candlelight, sunlight. Mm -hmm. And then he also used the exact dialogue from the books. So he selected actual dialogue from the books for the script. Mm -hmm. I believe was the other side of that. And it's really interesting to reflect on like what he chose and what he didn't choose. (laughs) I'm thinking particularly about the Brocklehurst conversation Mm -hmm. and that that confrontation between Jane and Mrs. Reed does not exist really in the same way as it does in the book. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting is what I'll say about that. God, he's handsome. Michael Fassbender. No, Kerry Joji Fukunaga. I would be curious who wrote the screenplay because like I have this experience. So I read this in my senior year of high school. We were allowed to choose from three novels. I don't even remember what the other two were for this project. So like we broke ourselves into groups and she's like, boys never choose Jane Eyre. So either that was like a gauntlet being thrown or whatever. But like we had exactly two boys in our group. Yeah. 
And the things that they picked up on versus like what, especially in the early chapters versus like what the girls and I picked up on, I think kind of breaks along this where it's like that confrontation with Mrs. Reed is so important for all of the moves that it makes for what Jane does, but also what Mrs. Reed admits. Like she admits to Mm. lying and like that's the thing that, you know, she's just painted Jane with. And like, I wonder who wrote the screenplay because I wonder if there isn't like a gendered viewpoint of that where it's like, oh, this isn't that important. The adaptation is credited to a woman who was also a producer, Moira Buffini. So maybe they just edit it for time. I don't know, because just knowing what I know about this director, the thing that I think most people know him for, he's rather infamous for, is season one of True Detective. Ooh. And sort of the fallout between he and the writer of that series after the fact. Also, given the fact that she has a a producer credit as well, Mm-hmm. And then also Charlotte Bronte has a screenwriting rather than just an adaptation credit. Mm-hmm. I think there is some interesting texture there. Like what a man thinks Jane Eyre is about. Right. is pretty interesting. So if you're a man, you know, hit us up. Tell us what you think it's about. Nick, what do you think Jane Eyre is about? Especially these early chapters. Yeah, especially these early formative chapters. You know, it's not the love story. And so a lot of it gets cut out. But to be honest, like, we're able to breeze through, you know, the parties at Thornfield because we have this distillation of Jane's experience of social events in these early chapters. Like, it's so formative. So anyways, (laughs) this is funny. The plot, uh, I'm on the Wikipedia page. The plot is broken up into Jane's childhood, Lowood, Thornfield Hall, other employment proposal. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's so interesting. God. Jamie Bell is so good in that adaptation as well. Like Michael Fassbender, obviously, Lynchpin is. Sinjin. God, Jamie Bell is Sinjin. I don't know what it is about Jamie Bell's face, but like I'm drawn to him like a moth to a flame. He's got a pointy face. He does have a pointy face. There's something elven about it almost. One of the things that is funny about this edition that I have is like I track all the times that she refers to herself as wretch and fiend. And it's quite a bit in the early, but then it like sort of falls out, especially as Mr. Rochester's introduced and he starts calling her other things. Like rather than fiend or wretch, it's often like imp or elf. Yeah. And like just how like words matter and like the words that we call ourselves matter. Okay, here's something interesting. The script by Maura Buffini appeared in the 2008 Brit List, a film industry compiled list of the best unproduced screenplays in British film. Huh. The m- movie was released in 2011. In October 2009, it was announced that Kerry Fukunaga would direct the adaptation. Fukunaga had been in England promoting a film when he met with the BBC and learned about their plans for a new adaptation. The filmmakers decided to play up the gothic elements of the classic novel, Fukunaga stated, I spent a lot of time rereading the book and trying to feel out what Charlotte Bronte was feeling when she was writing it. Hmm. That sort of spookiness that plagues the entire story. Plagues. There's been something like 24 adaptations and it's very rare that you see those sorts of darker sides. They treat it like it's just a period romance and I think it's much more than that. Hmm. I think we should do an episode where we analyze adaptations. I think we should too. I'd really like to, especially because Orson Welles has an incredible adaptation as Mr. Rochester with Olivia de Havilland as Jane. And like Orson Welles, just by virtue of who he is, like really plays up the gothic elements. So that's a really weird take. Yeah. He's a very technical director. So I feel like maybe he didn't think that much about the story, actually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so now he had to like summon something <laughs> about how he felt about Jane Eyre. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's just wild speculation on my part. Let's see. Yeah, let's see. Fukunaga and the producers wanted an actress close to Jane Eyre's age in the novel in contrast to many previous versions. Mm-hmm. He liked Voschkioska's sense of observation in her eyes and that she could communicate Jane's inner turmoil in a way that didn't feel theatrical. Hmm. He felt her looks could be played down as required for the role. <laughs> On casting Rochester, the director stated that while there were actors closer in appearance, he felt Fassbender had the spirit of the character. Yep. Perfect casting. Can confirm. Yeah, and he's also like, Fassbender is like good looking in spite of himself. Yes. But we'll get to Rochester. I think once we complete our reading, we should definitely do a survey of the film adaptations. And I think you're exactly right. Orson Welles loves gothic stuff. Yeah, dude. And really can barely abide a love story. (laughs) So I find it really interesting that that's his observation. It's a very weird one, especially because like, God, like Orson Welles' presence is basically just like gothic pathos on screen. When I think about this 2011 adaptation of Jane Eyre I think like aesthetically it feels very at home in Jane's mind but it doesn't feel particularly gothic like there's so much beauty and texture in it which of course comes from like her artistic sensibilities but I don't see much of the gothic Anyways, we'll talk about it later. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to our read along. We'll be back next week with chapter five. Mm, Lowood. She's heading to Lowood. (laughs) We're getting the band together here. We're getting the band together. Do you love sad stories of mean schools? (laughs) Buckle up, buttercups. All right. Thank you again so much. And we can't wait to read with you next time. Mwah!